You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin, and in this episode, I talk with Dr. Mark Kamori Stager of EastBayFamilyTherapy.com. There's Family Therapy in Walnut Creek, California. We talk about the Pixar film Inside Out. We discuss externalizing problems from people, the role of imagination in children's lives, and the role of emotions in narrative therapy and in memory. Stay tuned. I guess I thought about uh, recording this because, you know, you saw the Inside Out movie and took the initiative to invite other narrative therapists to see it. And I was kind of wondering, like, what you what you saw in the movie the first time that got you interested in, in having a discussion with other narrative therapists about it. What I saw was the externalization that was just so uh, much a core part of the movie and I went with my nine-year-old daughter and she absolutely loved it um, though she didn't afterwards talk about her feelings in an externalized manner I could still see the the use of it I thought oh this is going to be great for those of us who work narratively with little kids because they're going to come sort of primed already to uh, talk about their feelings as their own little entities. When I heard the movie described, I heard it described as a snapshot of the mind where the emotions kind of run the show, like this control panel booth, they kind of run things. But it actually was more complex and vaster than just these emotions running the control panels. Like it went a lot into uh, memory and imagination and a way that the emotions were all interconnected with memory and imagination. And I, I appreciated that because if it was just emotions running control panels, I thought it would seem very a little simplistic, you know. But I liked how vast that world was and how even the characters like joy and anger and sadness, they had complex emotional lives themselves. So there were things that made joy sad, things that made anger happy, things that made sadness uh, afraid. And they were all like relating to each other in a way that wasn't so, um, I don't know, wasn't so simple. Was was there anything surprising to you when you saw it that was sort of different than what you were expecting? I think, like you, I also thought that there was it was going to be mostly about emotions. Um, the piece that I, I didn't hear you say just there were the islands. So these were, what would you say, sub identities? Like this is who Riley is. Um, when she's with her family and how much joy there is and dad's goofiness is represented and things like that. And then there was her hockey playing. You know, I talk with with kids and adults too about, you know, different domains in their life. And the problem may be in one domain but not in another domain. And and here they are, little islands, and they're so, somewhat separate from each other. Family island and sport sport island or something like that. And then, you know, as they began to crumble as Riley's identity changed, um, there was a lot of distress for the for the emotions. Oh no, there it goes Family Island. Most recent Inside Out piece I read was the in, the article from Narrative Therapy India. Uh, the author was calling those values. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was more complex and inner. Uh, the one I'm remembering right now is the Family Island, and you know it had something goofy on it that kind of represented how goofy Dad could be um, with his daughter, mm-hmm. um, and it had a trampoline in it, and and. And so it wasn't just, you know, I value trampolines. It was here's something really fun um, and the interactions with um, mom and dad for the family one, interactions with um, uh, team members for the sport one. I think there was a big trophy on there, so interactions with with winning, with losing, with hope, um, despair maybe of losing. Uh, That's what I remember too is because these islands are very populated with people either sports team members or, like you said, with the father and with the family. And there would there would be things that happen in the movie that would cause some of these islands to to crumble and break down. And um, so the, the the family moves out from, remember from where? The Midwest. The Midwest to San Francisco. Right. And the dad is in, like, some very stressful tech startup, and he has less time to spend with his daughter and... It's, it's very stressful in the family, and the daughters find San Francisco very dirty and cramped compared to where they were living before. And, yeah, things start to crumble for her around the family island and the sports island. So in the control panel, there's, like, 
there's all these little scenes that happen in the girl's life and they make different colored orbs that are represented by the different emotions. So there's like the gold orb for joy, red orb for anger, blue orb for sadness. And so Joy's kind of is the leader and she kind of sets sets up the, like the purpose of the of the operation center as to get as as many joy orbs in the collection as possible. And everyone's all the other emotions are on board about that. Is that your understanding? Um well, first of all, I, the orbs were for memories. Yet Joy, I think through her enthusiasm and her energy sort of, um, it's more important to her than to anyone else to have a certain type of mem- memory and the others are pretty willing to let her have her way. And so most of the memories are golden colored, yellow colored and are joyful and Riley as a child is mostly happy. That works, seems to work for everyone involved for a little while. And when they move to San Francisco, it becomes harder for Joy's project of getting the happy orbs, happy memory orbs, uh, to be consistently happy. And it causes her a lot of distress. Uh, and she tries to work harder at getting the happy orbs. I remember sadness is played by a, this blue character and she starts touching the orbs, which actually changes them into blue. And Joy gets very upset about this, that she's touching these memories. And then sadness feels a lot of shame for the fact that when she touches these orbs, they, they're they no longer golden. I, re- I remember Joy kept catching sadness and sadness's response were like, I can't help it. I don't mean to. I know this is not good. And yet she was really drawn to those, those memories and really wanted to hold them, touch them. I- I'm not quite sure what it was. Maybe she wanted some joy in her own life. Mm-hmm. Joy's relationship with sadness was like, she kind of put up with sadness, but tried to have her have the least amount of power and influence over the control panels and the memories as she could. So it's something that, you know, she drew a circle. You're allowed to stay in this tiny circle and don't go out of it. This can be your circle. Um, but sadness is kind of presented as this character whose influence is pretty pretty negative you know it goes against the project of making as many happy memory orbs as you can and kind of useless in fact the touch of sadness uh is it just a negative thing to joy you know and kind of i don't know like a loser character in a way and if you get that uh low low status just just be in this tiny circle um and stay out of the way and you could just see the stress in Joy's, in Joy, about trying to do this, trying to keep sadness in this tiny circle, and how frustrated she was with sadness for, for staying involved. I saw sadness as actually trying to be helpful. She, she, was, she was on board the project to make as many happy memories as possible, and she was sort of on board the project of staying out of the way, and she was kind of a sad sack, right? She had low energy, she talked in kind of a, 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 a slow, whiny um, voice without lots of energy in it. Um, and and she accepted being circumscribed and, and limited. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she was, she was not happy about it. Um, she wasn't like, yay, this will really help Riley have, um, but she kind of went, oh, okay. Um, also, I remember that she was uh, another way that Joy tried to keep her out of the out of the mix, away from the control panel. Was she assigned sadness to read all the operations manuals, okay. and there were these thick three ring binders, and there was just shelves of them. Um, turned out later to be helpful because then, when they were lost in the memory banks and whatnot, sadness had a, a sense of what, where the right place to go was. So Joy and Sadness get sucked out of headquarters and transported to long-term memory storage where they meet some interesting characters who are cleaning the memory orbs. Right, I think they were the sort of um, janitor but also um, sort of sanitation workers. 
and and I remember one of the voices was Paula Poundstone, who's a fantastic comedian, and they were just going down, kind of making arbitrary decisions, like oh, we don't need this memory anymore, and they'd vacuum it up, and out it would go into the um, you know big pit of of dead memories, and I think also they could tilt the individual shelf backwards and send a memory back to headquarters, and so they were sending back things like. Um, you know those little jingles you get caught in your head, and then we'd we'd cut back to headquarters, and this stupid commercial jingle would come on, and anger would go, ah, you know, not this jingle again. Um, so that was what was fun you know, watching them. The other thing that I liked about the long-term memory storage is you would think, you know, be most efficient to have these long straight rows. Um, made me think of um, uh, in, in Harry Potter when they went to the predictions place and there were just racks I mean it looked like a dark and sinister Costco um, and this place they uh, cur- everything curved but I think modeled after um, the brain the yeah. uh, uh, neocortex of the brain with its um, folds and uh-huh. twists and turns one of the characters that I remember hanging around the long-term memory storage was her imaginary friend Bing Bong who is sort of like a pink elephant Made out of cotton candy, yeah. And she, he's in long-term memory right now, hanging around because he hasn't been active so much in her life recently. So it was her imaginary friend. She's kind of gotten away from it. How old is Riley? Do you remember? I, I think she was. A, I think she was eleven. Okay. Yeah. So joy and sadness meet Bing Bong, and they go to, they go out of long-term memory storage to the land of imagination. So they had the headquarters, they had long-term storage, they had these islands of values or sub-identities, and they also had you know, imagination land, where Bing Bong seemed like really at home in this place where you can make you know, a, a rocket ship out of a wagon and brooms and stuff like that. And you, and you guys know this is where Riley used to spend a lot of her time you know, in imagination land with Bing Bong. And as she's grown older, she spends less time with Bing Bong and with just this world where you can create fantastic things with your mind and magical realism is very much a part of her everyday consciousness and again it seemed like a very vast world where so much was possible and uh, there's so much creativity there and I've heard of um, narrative therapist David Marston and Laurie Markham and David Epstein are publishing a book next year about imagination young people's lives and people's lives in general and I just think uh, it's made me kind of just think about imagination just more in in my everyday life and and seeing how big a part of kids lives it is especially young children how does it happen that we get away from this very imaginative magical realistic way of, of living you know and there's a scene where they're kind of stuck in like this graveyard dead zone of of memories that have been sucked out and, and being destroyed and Bing Bong kind of sacrifices himself to get them out of there and then sort of waving goodbye so it's like her relationship with her imaginary friend it's like their final times together and it's very touching when you're working with with youth and how do you use people's imagination or use young people's imagination or is it you know through externalizing or, or what ways have you found to kind of draw draw upon that it's really fun. I mean, it's some of the fun of it. And, and, you know, Riley, as she kind of enters prepubescent, a prepubescent time, um, you know, is leaving behind, um, you know, that, that, like you said, magical realism, that the, the place where, you know, if it makes sense in my head, it's good to go with. One of the pieces I, I was really um, tickled by was there's a flashback to Riley being three or four and she and Bing Bong are playing tag in the house and they're running around and then Bing Bong is being chased and what does he do? He runs up the wall and runs away on the ceiling um, and it's like, it just caught me. It's like, oh yeah in my mind you can do that yeah. right? And Riley's mind, of course why Why else? I mean, why should the ceiling only be to hang things from? Um, so it was really uh, fun to remember um, how creative and free from you know real physical constraints you can be in in your imagination so i i don't know to answer your question it's like it's you 
you, know, you have you have to get into a kid's world in order to have them feel like they you get them and then it's a fantastic place to play around in asking kids how things work and what would happen and um, they can play a lot of could it be what would happen if uh, and watch them take it and run I remember David Epson describing it a little bit like uh, in s with sports you know if a team has their home home field advantage they're statistically shown to just win a lot more they have the home team advantage and so how do we get in uh, young people's home turf and a lot of it is this world of magical realism they're maybe more comfortable in that that world than seeing an adult and being rational and rationally describing things so i thought about that when working in the preschools like how do i join into this world of magical realism and connect with kids there in a way that they have their upper hand you know they're more imaginative and creative than i am so you know i would just play around with doing with things like uh having a recording of bird songs on my iPhone or just slipping into my pocket and then hanging around a classroom. And then kids are like, what's, what's that sound? And I'm like, what sound? And they're like, well, the birds. I'm like, oh, I have some birds who live in my pocket. And they're like, what? And yeah. And uh, <laughs> just these little things that would make it like I could join into this, this world where imaginative things are very real and it's no big deal. It's <laughs> the way things are. And, you know, asking imaginary dinosaurs for help with conflict, yeah, telling kids I'm part wolf, whatever things I can do, join in that world. And it really does, it's like a practice of building good relationships, um, joining in that imaginative play. And I, I felt like kids really, really valued that, seeing that from an older person, that they could, this, this world of imagination is intelligible and you could meet them there. They got a kick out of it. And forever, you know, made this world an inside out. It's like there was a lot of creativity and imagination there, and it's it's neat to see adults creating these giant, vast, imaginative worlds. I'm remembering the an interview with the director, I think, um, and one of the things that you know made me think about this being great for for narrative therapy was the story he was relating was a kid who was having a hard time jumping off the high diving board and then he did it and the director asked him what changed and he said oh I just decided that fear was um, at the control panel too much and I told him to step aside uh, so that was kind of that was a neat story right there's there's narrative therapy in action yeah. talk about you know externalization in narrative therapy you know it can sound like just just a linguistic thing thing um, but it does seem to lead to some effects, which is like it's it's easier to play around with some things if they're external than if they're internal, you know? You can have different relationships when something's sort of externalized than you can if it's a deficient part of you that you're trying to uncover or work through or express. Do you get that sense that externalizing sort of supports uh, playful relationships to problems? Yeah, I certainly get that experience maybe the way that I think of it and then thus the way that I work with it is that when it's a part of you, there's not really a relationship. It's just who you are. And so the choices you're left with are, are sort of ways of mitigating that. But when you separate out um, the problem part from the sort of concrete identity of somebody, now it's in relationship and now you can ask questions about that relationship and who can change it and who has the ability to change it and what keeps it in place and what would help it move and and, and those kind of things and then it's it's fun and creative I can remember many times when sort of the light bulb would go off in a, in a client and you know it, it sort of state the obvious you know like like they're reading out of a narrative textbook and say something like oh you're thinking of feelings or this problem as it's like own thing and I'm like well I I am you know and then what do you think the effects of that would be how would that be different and um, but it was fun to have them sort of in a sense look behind the curtain and see how narrative therapy is w what it's doing um you told me one example of like the anxiety simulator or the reality simulator can you share about that sure um so a person who's quite 
anxious. And the way she was describing it is her mind goes through all the ramifications of what could possibly go wrong. And there's, you know, several hundred for any particular event. And she's sort of not allowed to move forward until she has solved each one of those. And the way that it was framed was, you know, I'm an anxious person. And these are my anxious thoughts. And, and the way to control my anxiety is to know what would happen in this emergency situation, in this emergency situation, and this amazingly unlikely situation. So I started talking to her about, oh, that's a, that's a reality simulator. It's not what's real. It's what anxiety is telling you is, is real. It's sort of a, a version of reality. And once we kind of got that separation, we could ask questions of the reality simulator. Who is it to think, you know, this very unlikely possibility of anything happening um, is worthy of consideration or, or, or worthy of stopping um, her from moving her life forward? Um, and, and maybe it would be better to solve the one or two problems that actually show up and to have trust in herself to be able to do that rather than staying put until all possibilities are taken care of. And is that one of the rules of the reality simulator to go through every possible outcome? Right, the reality simulator simulates all possible outcome, all negative possible outcomes, right? <laughs> and the rule is before you move forward with this action, you need to solve all possible negative outcomes. You, you need to know what to do. And of course the trick is, well, if you solve one of those, then it itself has a bunch of ramifications. And so she's frozen in place. Yeah. What difference do you think it made to, to name it like that and see it like that? A way to kind of leap over it is that, uh, to leap over your question and say the ultimate effect is that she's moving her life forward. And she and I have not discussed terribly much how that's happened because it's just wonderful that it's happening. And it's actually something I've seen um, with many clients, you know, the more robust story we have, even of the problem, but as separate, things just sort themselves out without, without the logical steps. And there's a way in which I think it's a counter to what I think of as cognitive behavioral therapy. We're not in there going, well, what are these thoughts and what are your counter thoughts? We're just like, well, what's this story? And sometimes you have to help with the counter story and sometimes the counter story just develops. Mm -hmm. But I think for a, a more concrete, not leaping over answer, it's just given us something to talk about. It leads to a different conversation than talking about anxiety, mm -hmm. because anxiety is an internal feeling state that's true. It, it, I feel anxious. Um, when I feel anxious, I can't do things, are sort of the rules. When it's the reality simulator, now it's the reality simulator telling her you can't move and gives her the opportunity to say who are you you know who's giving you this power um, and and now she can um, have just a little bit of separation from the thoughts and a little bit of separation from the feeling um, to call it into question it occurs to me also calling it anxiety there's a lot of already cultural discourse around anxiety and what anxiety is and how serious it is and how people should be relating to it and the kind of things you need to do about it Calling a reality simulator is new and fresh, and it invites a lot of more openness about possible ways of relating that than, than anxiety, which is clinical, and there's lots of professionals that'll tell you what to do, and you can Google it, and it'll have you know 10 things to do that can be helpful for some people, but it's, it's more like you know, advice from distant experts than reality simulator. It seems like it would be a fresher way of responding to it, I guess. Well, you mentioned something about, like, you think having a, ro a robust story about what was going on helps people move forward. What do you mean, like, robust? R robust meaning it's got details. The way that I think about it in narrative terms is, I, I can remember in eighth grade English, there was uh, man versus the world, man versus nature, man versus man, man versus himself. And, you know, that's a one-sentence story. And then stories I like to read are several hundred pages long. And so those are more robust. Yes, you can boil it down to, you know, man versus nature and just close the book, but that's not compelling. And I think one of the ways that narrative therapy is helpful is people come in and say, you know, I have anxiety. I'm an anxious person. I'm depressed. Um, I can't get along with 
my husband, whatever those are. And they're, they're kind of one sentence stories. And as narrative therapy has helped me, um, you know, reading all the books and articles and talking with people has given me a bunch of questions that then help me help clients begin to describe their situations in, in greater detail. And so you can begin to find, oh, in this domain, I have these problems, but I've kept the problem out of these other domains. And, and then are there skills there? Are there, is there wisdom that you've learned? So I remember joy and sadness find a way to get back to headquarters. And the final part of the movie, sadness's influence is seen as something that can be uh, positive instead of just like polluting, you know, like she was polluting the joy orbs by coloring them blue. But then she does something that maybe she listens to somebody and it's comforting to them. Do you remember what, what she did that was uh, Joy saw as positive and was surprised by? Uh, there was once where uh, Bing Bong was talking about how sad he was that um, he wasn't Riley's primary play person anymore. And... Uh, sadness was empathic um, and said something like, wow, that's really sad. And he cried his uh, hard candy tears. Um, and Joy had a moment of insight that said, oh, there's value in, in sadness. I've heard Stephen Madigan and David Epstein use this term weirdly abled. And Stephen Madigan said all of us are weirdly abled. And I, I thought of that with, with sadness that she was seen as a sort of downer character that should really you know people had to deal with but she had these weird abilities like comforting others and empathizing with others that start to be really helpful in the kind of adventure of of life that uh you know joy and sadness and riley were on and joy started to see that that sadness had some weird abilities that joy didn't have started to value those and then sadness started to uh, when she was acknowledged by Joy or Bing Bong, started to see, oh, some of these weird abilities matter to people. And towards the end, all the emotions start touching the orbs. And instead of just having one color orb, like uh, gold, red, green, blue, you start seeing these multicolored orbs. And that the different emotions touch the orbs so that they're all kind of unique and these blend of multiple colors rather than joy trying to make it so that all the orbs are golden and a good day is when you have lots and lots of golden orbs they have all the orbs are unique and multicolored and that was really uh i need to see that visually so are you noticing that i i feel like that like that's that's like a practice that i i think i i value and sort of you know, working at this shelter for homeless youth, not everything can be these golden orbs of joy. And shifting away from thinking about it like that, yeah, appreciation of all the complexity and the multi multicolored nature of things is, is, is yeah, it's more helpful than, than sort of some romantic notion of getting to a place where everything is, is golden, you know. That seems like a very romantic, you know, romantic project of endless supply of golden orbs and shift away from that to a more unique multicolored appreciation of life yeah that seems that seems like a practice i guess for me that i i like and is evocative of something that i i'm sort of shifting been shifting towards and try to shift towards too and when you're working with these kids how do you help them move towards a a more nuanced set of feelings or or away from a goal of I want to be happier or success would be me being happy into something uh, more encompassing? Well, I don't know. Like, I don't know because I, I don't hear them, you know, talk in those terms. Because it feels like a community in the shelter, people see each other's multi, you know, multi-colors in their emotions and their uh, events of their lives. And I think there's like a respect. This is a human experience having these multiple colors. And it's different than if you're only seeing people and they're only sharing what's joyful in their life. And so I think just being around that, like being around people and seeing the multiple colors that they go through 
it feels like a more robust picture of people. I mean, what I think is like, Joy was a little stressed in her project to make everything golden. It was determined, she had to kind of deal with all these other emotions and make sure they didn't get in, in the way. It wasn't so collaborative, like they were on, they were on board, she was sort of dominating how things were going. Her orbs were superior to everyone else's orbs. And she you know, worked hard to make this happen, and it was stressful, and she got a sense of accomplishment with it. But towards the end, where everyone's sort of contributing and influencing, it had a different tone in headquarters. As an outsider to that headquarters, it seemed a lot more peaceful and a lot more, I guess, you know, robust or, or you know, lively or beautiful than just the project of accumulating golden orbs. Do you find, I don't know, maybe we could call it living quarters when you're with kids in the shelter, or that, that there's sort of a larger version of Riley's headquarters that you've got different kids milling around and different staff milling around and, and, and how you, how do you guys interact with each other? And do you find that that ends up being, um, collaborative? Mm -hmm. So the shelter doesn't feel like this headquarters where we're pushing buttons and operating things and have this goal of getting as many of X as possible. Um, you know, it's people acknowledging each other, appreciating each other, finding ways to keep each other's spirits up and share uh, cultures and share what interests us. And yeah, when it's going well, support each or support the people who are having a hard time, just give people company and let the, the scene be shaped by the people who are there. And it doesn't, it feels different than a, a kind of modernist project of let's structure so we can make progress in a very quantifiable way. Or this kind of romantic wholeness that, you know, we're all one and it's different than that too. Um, I, I guess like almost the first part of Inside Out, the headquarters felt very modernist with, you know, this, this mission to make progress and accumulate golden orbs as the, as the good life. And actually it seemed very stressful and a pretty small circle in a way. And at the end, when you see all these multicolored orbs, it seems much more artistic and complex and just and more relaxed and creative. So it's a, yeah, it's evocative of sort of a different way of living, I guess, that I'm interested in. I think when we were at the California Pizza Kitchen talking right after the movie, we talked about sort of limitations of this metaphor of the mind. And, you know, it may highlight certain things that feel like lifelike or evocative, but does it, you know, obscure other aspects of, of how life can be or how the mind can be? I think you talked about ways it could be kind of individualistic. But I, I wouldn't say my mind feels like emotions vying for control or anything like that. Yeah, so do you, you think like there's any limitations to the metaphors that are presented in Inside Out? The, the biggest one, and I've seen it in my practice, is that Riley, the actual kid, is way marginalized. She is really not around. She is only the summation of her emotions, um, and not even the summation. She, you know, whatever emotion is in charge is in charge. Um, and so I've talked with some of my little guys that are in here, and and they're just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, that emotion is in charge. And so that's who I am. Joy came in and I was happy or disgust came in and I ain't eating that. Some of the work has been to bring the kid back in into the story um, and not just, you know, pass the buck on. That's what I was feeling. So that's how it was going to be. Another one is there's not a lot of, there's not thoughts. We don't get to hear how thinking would be engaged, talking to yourself. Or, you know, Riley's not coming in and saying, hey, you guys, you know, let's let a, a little sadness in. Or, yes, disgust, you've saved my life from eating broccoli, and I'm going to want to try it this time. Uh, you know, so back off a little bit. That was missing. So you see, like, Riley doesn't really have agency outside of the, 
the emotions through that controlling headquarters? Right, that, that there's almost no Riley in the story. Riley, it, Riley is these five emotions that we're tracking. Like you were saying, that doesn't match my sense of myself. I, you know, when I'm feeling sad, um, it's not like Mark disappears and it's just all sadness. I'm in there relating to my sadness, often trying to excuse it, but at other times, you know, playing with it like a loose tooth or something like that, and uh, sort of playing playing with the pain of the sadness and uh, getting on the on the razor edge of that. It seems to me like in narrative therapy, the human comes in and says, I am this way. And the movie instead says, uh, we don't really have a person here. We just have these emotions. And as they play off each other, Riley's kind of the puppet. Uh, if I had boys in here, it would probably be those, um, those mechs where there's the human inside the humanoid robot controlling the robot. And Riley ends up kind of being the robot in the movie. Have you seen... You know, this movie kind of influence the kids you work with, uh, the way they talk about themselves or or their emotions or their situations? Like, are they starting to get these kind of cultural references to the movie in a way that you can sort of use them in, in the therapy room? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're talking about it. I think the place where it's really valuable is these kids are now much more ready and able to talk about uh, emotions because they've got some language for it. Uh, oh, that was anger. The tricky part has been a diminishing of their own responsibility their own agency and so then my questions are designed around if you could talk to anger what would you say or anger got you storming around the house or yelling obscenities or in the principal's office but did anger get in trouble or did you get in trouble and is that fair you know some way of trying to pull the kid back into the story rather than sort of tossing up hands and saying that's how I was feeling that's often a question that people have when they hear about narrative therapy and externalization is like will this diminish a sense of personal responsibility if you you shift it away from internal stuff to externalizing it so you're saying you see that happening like some youth will kind of let go of responsibility because they'll talk about it in terms of anger took me over or something like that and you talk to them about their relationship to anger and their responses back to anger in a way that can bring up that kind of personal responsibility? Yeah, so it, it ended up calling into, actually meeting with the kids called into question my enthusiasm for Inside Out being this great externalizing movie and, and kids were really going to externalize and it was going to be, you know, well, we don't have to do, it takes care of like eight meetings, I don't know. Um, and And What's happened, at least the kids that I've met with, uh, is, um, you know, rather than coming in and saying, the world pisses me off and, um, you know, the world deserves all the anger responses that I give it, the, the, the monolithic entity is now anger. Anger was in charge then. And so it still ends up being sort of pre-externalized. There's no relationships. Kids kind of come in and say, in a sense, I took a back seat and anger took a front seat and anger's just in control. And, 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 and so there's not the relationship between anger and the kid or between sadness and the, and the kid. There's just that monolithic feeling and, you know, what to do. Um, so there's still the relationship building between the child and the feelings that needs to happen. And so that relationship building between uh, the person and the externalized entity the relationship building is what brings back personal responsibility right yeah that's how i've seen it and how when i've had the critique about externalizing just you know why would people ever want to change things if it wasn't their fault um but it turns out you can kind of um split off responsibility and fault it may not be your fault it is your responsibility when the kids come in pre-externalized with character, the feeling characters from Inside Out, um, there still isn't the distance. Um, there's not a relationship. Your emotions are not all of you. And whatever emotion happens to be predominant at any one moment is not all of you. I mean, I know this is sort of backed up with um, research that there's the what, six main emotions. I think, I think the movie combines surprise and, and anger mm-hmm. together. But there's, we have so many words in our culture for uh, different feeling states, like, you know, pride. 
where does where does pride come in? I felt proud about myself for feeling my angry feelings and yet holding back from punching somebody, um, throwing something or breaking something. Um, so I think, I think some richness is missing there. But it makes me think also about the place of emotions in narrative therapy. I've heard people talk about that, like what is the place of emotions and you know, being explicit about labeling emotions um, and having emotional conversations. You know, there's emotional, emotion-focused therapy. I've heard Michael White talk a little bit about emotions and I've heard him say things like sometimes the emotion-focused work seems like a mind-body split like people are talking about it like as if emotions are separate from thoughts and labeling them very explicitly can be like this way of chopping it up um, and treating them as very like discrete independent things where a lot of times they blend together and he doesn't seem like he's always so explicit about naming emotions Um, but some people find a lot of value in that and where do you see the place of emotions in narrative therapy I've liked the idea that um, emotions and thoughts and I would throw in behaviors are all really tightly coupled and it's hard to pull them apart. Um, When I was still in graduate school, I was working in a place that was exquisitely CBT. And um, it was was harder because, you know, it was thoughts come first. You can't. You really can't have feelings until you've evaluated the situation, and then once you've evaluated the situation, then your feelings show up, and then your behaviors come out of that. And it was this very rigid triangle, and it only happened in one way. And CBT really only intervened at thoughts, um, because they were sort of the beginning point. And you know, I kept bringing in my family therapy training, circular causality. You know, um, if you're feeling a certain way, your thoughts are going to go a certain way. And so it was nice to, um, you know, hear Michael White talk about um, you know, not making those distinctions so explicit. In therapy, I don't know how that operationalizes because we talk about feelings and certainly people emote in therapy look around i got all these tissue boxes everywhere um uh so it's it's part of people's experience and um and you know some people feel an emotion and they really sort of go for it and say hey this is how i'm feeling at the moment and there's other people that are like i'm feeling this way and i'm i'm cutting it off a lot of times these conversations are really emotionally resonant even if we're not specifically labeling, you know, what were you feeling then? And that sounds like it made you really sad. And so I hear the critique of making sure that, you know, we're talking about things that are emotional and meaningful for people. And yet there's, I'm a little wary of um, just chopping up the situation into labeling emotions. Um, I'm not sure why I'm wary about that. I just, I noticed that I am. And I know I've heard a lot of people talk about narrative therapy, like it can be, it can sound heady and where's emotion. But I also feel like in a lot in the conversations I have with people, it's a very emotional situation they're going through. Of, you know, they've just been violent with one of their kids, or you know, their the child is about to be expelled from school, and empathizing with them about how sad or scary that might be feels a little blunt and a little crude in, in some ways, you know. What are you thinking might be some effects uh, of pulling uh, emotions out and labeling them or or chopping up someone's experience in, in this fashion? That's a good question. I'm not sure what, what I think the effects are. Um, you said you're, you're, you're cautious about doing this. And is it is the sort of what fuels the caution? Is it, you know, more looking at what, the effect it might have on a client or is it... Um, uh, coming more from what you've heard, Michael White, or, or you know, is it more fueled by the literature tells me? Yeah, some of some of from the literature, but also some of my experiences, like in grad school, where it was very uh, emotion focused. I feel like there's a lot of stuff around what are you feeling now, and labeling emotion, and and being really in touch with emotions and labeling emotions is like a path to to health and very important for therapists to do, and finding sometimes that it would keep me and some clients kind of fragile, you know, and kind of in this catharsis model of, 
you know, if you feel deeply and express deeply emotions, good things will happen um, if you just get at it fully and deeply. And finding, you know, my own life and life of clients, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes it was, you know, it could lead to this situation of, you know, people going deeply into feelings, having a temporary big response, um, but not uh, the change in you know, how they live their lives or the possibilities they see for their lives. And sort of wanting to find another way besides doing this kind of emotional uh, expression, emotional catharsis, or even you know, empathizing with the emotions in this very kind of blunt way. So I, I bet there's people out there who work very explicitly with emotions in ways that I would really value. I just, I feel like I've seen, I've seen it lead to kind of a small, again, like a small pool of people staying kind of fragile and people staying more self-absorbed, you know, like constantly checking about their emotions. I feel like I paid my dues to that way of living and I'm interested in something else. And I think, I think being values focused and, you know, meaningfulness focused and possibilities focused, I get a lot of mileage out of that. And those are emotional things for me in a way that kind of monitoring myself and monitoring other people for the emotions they might be experiencing, it doesn't lead to the same kind of outcomes. Do you have any wariness or caution about, about what we're talking about? One is a cross-cultural one. It's a uh, fun story, I suppose, from uh, graduate school where I was at a, um, was my very first practicum. I was as green as possible. And I don't remember how it got set up, but at one of our training meetings with all the other interns, it was an APA site, so there were some you know, very well-trained people from very good schools. Um, and I was picked to be the therapist with a, uh, another intern, and she was Japanese, not Japanese-American, she was Japanese-Japanese. And her um, scenario was that um, when she was like, had a psychotic break and was on the subway and got brought in, you know, something like that. And, you know, I, I went for the very basic, um, well, how do you feel? And she laughed. I, you know, I think she kind of broke character in a sense that she went back to who, she, who she is. And, and she's like, that question doesn't compute in, 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 in Japanese culture. You would never ask anyone how they feel. Um, so it just, it, those are very, you know, perhaps very American questions to um, to to go into feelings. I loved how you said you've, um, you know, given your paid your due for that that sort of way. And I just, you know, flash all those times that I was in a cafe writing in my journal, and and now I go to a cafe and see all these people writing in their journals, and um, like, oh yeah, I remember doing that. It was the sort of young adult angst of <laughs> what what am I going to do with my life, and what I do with these intense emotions, and and whatnot. Um, I had something else to say. Oh, um, you were talking about you know catharsis, and I think catharsis in and of itself is not it is not is not a story, and and I think clients who are encouraged to emote and get it all out and go deep, kind of maybe at the end of the hour feel a bit abandoned um, by the therapist who's like thank you very much. Um, and for them going, you know, God, I feel so drained and so exposed. And, um, you know, when I think about those times in my own life, you know, that catharsis tank is going to refill and not the, not the empty it again. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, I have my own cultural pieces about that. I, I think I look really ugly when I'm crying. And so I really like to do it privately. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so, and so, you know, I think a narrative task is to narrativize strong emotions, and you can do that with, um, you know, what are the values that led you to um, being this emotional about something, or what's the value in crying? But to put the strong emotions and the expressing of strong emotions in a story that's got movement in it. This, this, these feelings are going somewhere. These feelings are fueling something or these feelings come out of um, a certain way that your life is organized. Um, I mean, do you share the, the concern that some people have expressed that, you know, there's a way narrative therapy can get intellectual or cognitive in a way that doesn't ultimately help people, uh, you know, move in new directions because it's not 
emotionally resonant? Do you think that's a, a danger that you see or you watch out for in your own practice? I don't think I have that as much because I think the sort of headiness matches for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I like I like thinking of narrative therapy as sort of applied philosophy. Um, you know, we're not just going to philosophize about uh, you know post structuralist stuff and, and teach graduate students about it. We're going to do it. Uh-huh. Put it into the world and see how it works. And so I think I come at it from a more heady position. Um, I don't think as a human I lean strongly towards the emotional side of, of uh, experience. There's ways in which I like it because it really matches and I don't have those cautions. And then that flips to, well, are you missing something because you, you as a human don't um, experience the world that way I don't experience my life that way and so am I leaving huge chunks on the table am I ignoring other people's um, uh, processes of what I do better if I you know, got back into therapy and did a real a deep emotional <laughs> you know try to grow that part of myself you know back like in my 20s when I was doing the journaling right after therapy and like, oh this and this and this I think also like what you were saying I I noticed that um, narrative therapy is invites emotions in. Um, sometimes I think from the really close listening to people, it's it's a it's empathic and you know it's, it it's touching to be understood. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe this is a piece labeling an emotion, uh, sadness or anger or pride or um, embarrassment or something like that. That's that's kind of reductionist. Um, and it's you know we we protest labeling with mental health diagnoses. Maybe there's a good protest in there to say, um, what happens? What's the effect when you take this rich lived experience and um, highlight the emotion out of it and label it? And now it's been reduced. Mm-hmm. And then I think some you know another place where I find those those emotional responses from people are you know asking you know what 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 values does this engender or where you know does this come out of and and people start thinking differently um about having just hit their kid um you know right that there's it while the questions may be philosophical while the questions may be heady um the answers are not Uh, i like what you're saying about how it's the danger of being reductionistic like saying i was sad that doesn't it's not the same as going into a robust story ab- about the experience. You know, this happened and I was sad. Is It can yeah, put a stop to kind of robust storytelling. Um, uh, you asked me to explain robust. Yeah. Let me ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it is like, uh, I guess, like I would start with a, with a feeling, you know, <laughs> like I could, I get a feeling if it if something feels robust, you know. Um, I wouldn't label it with one of the emotion words, but I, you know, I can feel moved. I can feel uh, touched, you know. I can feel uh, kind of a sense of vastness, or you know, other thoughts are sort of cleared away, other experiences are cleared away, and I'm really moved by some experience. So a robust story for me has that effect of. of yeah, moving me or transporting me or making me or clearing, clearing things away. And so I'm really felt the presence of some robust story, you know, thinking about a talking with a mother and daughter last week, you know, just, wow, this is a powerful, robust story that just came out in the three of us talking, you know. Um, and to say like it was a happy story or a sad story or it, it feels very blunt and very much like chopping it up. I know David Epson has these workshops, these two-day workshops in Berkeley where I go over like, what makes a good story? He, I've heard some, he said someone talked about heft. A good story has heft to it. And little kids will say it has to not be boring. Some of the qualities of a good story. <laughs> but I think, it, you know, I think of some of these robust stories I've had a privilege to encounter and um, be a part of. You know, it clears away a lot of the other uh, thin stories that are out there. And it really feels as a presence to it, as a heft to, to it that, yeah, is powerful and kind of generative of further action. I feel like 
Michael White talked about, you know, rich development of rich storylines, creative foundation for people to take action in their lives. And I get that feeling. Sometimes these stories just have this robustness and this dignity to the characters and to people that you can do things you can't do if all you have is a story that you're a good person or a bad person or a happy person or a sad person, you know, or you're getting what you want or not getting what you want. There's a, a body to it that fuels creativity for me. So it's very much more like evocative than technical for me about what, what a robust story is right now. Um, I guess I know it when I, when I hear it. <laughs> I, I agree with you on the, on the moved part. And if I can tell a story of one of David Epson's stories, I was at one of his trainings back at the old JFK campus in Orinda. And yeah, he was up on the stage and, and had uh, several of the audience members up there doing something live for us. And, and, and then afterwards... I think the question was like, you know, how did you know to go this way or this way or whatnot? And he said it's it's a felt sense and it actually gives him goosebumps. And then he he waved one hand over the arm hairs of his other one other arm and was you know saying like you know I can feel it. Yeah. Um, and I I think I've had experiences like that where I get kind of a an emotional tingle. Um, sometimes back of the neck, sometimes heart. And I don't know that I, I don't know that there's a, I don't have a label for it yeah. um, other than tingle, um, and, you know, and it's a, and it's an emotion. It's not a thought. Um, it's not a behavior. Um, and, and it's a little spooky, but it's also a kind of a good feeling and a good compass maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I had a conversation last week where I felt like I'm really glad I picked this career. You know, I was, it was a meaningful conversation and to say I was proud or happy just feels so it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the right signs for that. But saying moved or I like tingle. <laughs> um, yeah, feel I'm comfortable with those words, whereas saying happy or proud uh, or accomplished feel like very diminishing of the experience. Uh, I think this is what I was going to say. When I'm reading a book, you know, the, the sort of most pleasurable experience or why I read and what I try to get into is when I get lost. Right, that, that I'm no longer reading. I'm my body is no longer sitting in the chair or laying in the bed. I'm not holding the book. I'm in the story, um, and and that's wonderful. And I think, um, you know, so many human things are going on. I'm feeling feelings. I'm thinking thoughts. I have visions in my head of how the world looks. Um, For me, it's usually visual, but, you know, a good author can get me hearing things and tasting things and feeling things um, so that I'm really present in the story. And perhaps that's what a good narrative therapy session is where um, we're all in the story potentially in the story of whatever life event is being described, but potentially in the story of the narrative therapy story that's happening in the room about whatever life event is going on. Um, But uh, uh, an amazing amount of presence and connectedness. And now I'm thinking of um, the concept of flow, um, which I think is very individualistic as it's it's done in in its own internal literature. So is there a, a corporate flow, a uh, multi-bodied creation of mm-hmm. flow and connectedness, and we're all on the same page. And, yeah. I think of a solidarity. You know, sometimes I can get that sense of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's 11.15. This is like a good yeah. time. Yeah, this is a good time to quit. You good? I'm good. You good? I'm good. And big thanks to Dr. Mark Komori-Stager for joining me on this episode of Banter Radio. For more information, you can check out his website at eastbayfamilytherapy.com. And the final thing I'd like to play in this episode is an excerpt from Michael White uh, talking in 2007, April 1st, 2007, at the International Trauma Studies Program in New York City. This can be found on vimeo.com just search for michael white trauma narrative therapy and you should find it 
and this is the third video in the series. Here he is when someone asks him a question about the place of emotion in narrative therapy. It's about five minutes. I'm struck when you were talking about Jason, um, the way that you spoke to him seemed to me to be, um, you were sort of pulling emotion out of it and really appealing to his ratiocination or something. And it seemed to me that when you, at just a few minutes ago, talked about it's not about empathy and it's not about sympathy, that it's about resonance. So I'm very struck in a way with the position of emotion in your work. Um, and I, I kind of, I'm hoping that something more will emerge about almost a theory of emotion that I feel is, is kind of buried there or an assumption about it. Um, uh, because it feels to me like you, you're putting a kind of enormous and very compelling weight on ideas of understanding and of acknowledgement of thought. Really, um, which which I find you know very moving, um, but I'm I'm a little I just would like to hear more about it. It's not so much about thought as it is the image. You know, it's not so much about thought. It's so much about the image, and so um, which is I think quite distinct. And um, people often ask me this question about emotion, and. Um, you know, I, I, I see every expression as a unit of experience and uh, I, I tend not to divide things up into cognition and emotion and, and so on. And I think every expression is a unit of meaning and experience and um, every expression is also an action that is shaping life. So um, I see what we call emotion as a unit of meaning and experience. So I don't, I don't I don't, I don't really speak in sort of um, sort of West Coast ways, okay? So um, a lot of this feeling speak is West Coast speak, and I'm not so much into uh, you know, West Coast speaking. Um, and so, um, so for example, if someone is someone is crying uh, or distressed over something very significant to them, um, this is a unit. Uh, 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 it includes an action, doesn't it? So um, I'm interested in uh, where these tears are taking the person to. You know, um, you know if these uh, tears were like suitcases we could open up, what would we find in them? When you ask those questions, you just don't hear about a feeling, you hear about a, an understanding. So a person might say, I suppose you'd find some compassion for myself in these tears. So it's also an action. So. I'm not into this, you know, affect, uh, um, thought, behaviour business. It's not. My, I'm, I had no interest in in in, in those um, sort of Cartesian dualisms. I've never been interested in those that, that those Cartesian uh, ways of thinking. I think that you know it, it just doesn't interest me. I, I, um, so. Uh, but in terms of my work, you'll see expressions of my work that um, you might say that this is affect being expressed and this is this and this is that. And uh, you might be reflected on the fact that I'm crying with people, <laughs> you know, or that I'm, I'm, I'm sobbing with them over something, or that I'm uh, with them in joy over something. But I wouldn't break it up in that way myself. So um, I, I don't. You know, I don't, I, I don't have to have a theory about emotion because it's it's not. I don't. I'm not into those dualisms in my work. And so, someone said to me, "Your work is cognitive." And I say, "Well, I don't get that." You know, you know. Uh, so uh, it's just not something that I'm I'm drawn to. I'm not saying you shouldn't be. And so, and there might be a theory of emotion in that, but I don't really know. What happens when we? Um, when Deanne experiences these highly resonant retellings, what's happening to her internally? Well, I see Deanne going from, um, in my work with her, this uh, girl who's very wan, colourless, in, in, um, and who sits like this a lot of the time. Um, I see something happening to her for physiologically in a conversation. You know, right? her face gets now full of colour. Um, her um, 
she's sitting in a different posture. Um, if I was to ask her what's going on for her, um, I, I might support her to describe what's going on for her in terms of her inner sensations. You know, she might say, for example, that I'm feeling fizzy, and, um, and that, that fizziness is replacing a sense of being numb or, or having no feelings. So I think there's something going on here. I don't know how you would explain that, uh, but I, I would think of, think of it in terms of some physiological changes are taking place. Um, you know, the, the mind-body thing, I mean, I don't draw distinctions around mind and body. Um, so I, there's clearly something going on for, here physiologically um, in the context of these conversations. So. Thank you, Michael White. The music for the show comes from DJ Lang 59 with Drops of H2O and Garden of the Forking. Thanks for listening.